Mac Power Users, episode 261. Mac Power Users live on June 6, 2015. Hello, everyone. It's David Sparks, along with my pal, Katie Floyd. How are you today, Katie? I'm great, David. How are you? I, I, I look forward to the first Saturday of every month in ways that a grown man should not. Yeah, it worries me a little bit. I, I just love doing the live show. It's We get all this feedback over the course of the month, and there's all this stuff we want to talk about. We always have this outline that's loaded up. We get to about half of it every time. But I don't know. There's something about waking up on Saturday and talking to our geek friends. I really enjoy it. What can well, I say? Um, anyway, we've uh, we've got a guest here today, but before we get to it, we've got a few things to talk about. Um, this episode is going to go live a few days after the uh, Worldwide Developer Conference keynote uh, up in San Francisco. Um, some things may change based on what happens at that keynote that we talk about today. So uh, just bear with us there. I am going to be on the ground at WWDC this week, though. So uh, next this weekend's show that's going to come out a few days after this one. Is going to be all about WWDC and how it affects some of the workflows and the things we talk about here on the Mac Power Users. Um, uh, we're going to have several audio comments today. If you've got some audio comments, please send them in. Uh, we love having them. Keep them to about two minutes, though. When they get really long, it's hard to kind of get them into the show. And um, we're going to talk about the Apple Watch at the beginning. Apple Watch has been a little divisive in the Google Plus group for Mac Power Users. A lot of, <laughs> That's yeah. yeah a, a lot of people like it. A lot of people are like, eh, I don't have a watch. I'm tired of hearing about it. So um, uh, we're going to keep most of the show Apple Watch free, except for the first segment. So if you want to skip forward like 20 minutes, you'll be probably free of Apple Watch. But we do want to talk about it because there's a lot of listeners that really like talking about it and they're having one. And, you know, it's new hardware from Apple. We want to learn about it. So. We can't help ourselves. It's, it's mainly and, my and fault. And David is really, really, really excited about the Apple Watch, right? Yeah, well, blame me. I mean, that... Yeah. Blame me. I, I, I'm usually excited about a lot of things. That's one of my problems, as, as many people tell me. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so, yeah. so to, to talk about the Apple Watch, we brought in a friend of ours, a friend of the show, Jeff Richardson. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hi, David. Hi, Katie. Good to talk to y'all. Uh, now, Jeff runs the the great website uh, iPhone JD, which is uh, originally started as an iPhone site geared towards uh, lawyers. But you know, I, I think people in all walks of life and business can learn a lot from your website. So I, I would encourage people, even if they aren't lawyers, to go check out iPhone JD. Of course, we'll have a, a link in the show notes to that. I appreciate you saying that, Katie. Uh, mostly lawyers uh, read the website, but I'm constantly getting comments from doctors and other business people. Anyone who uses their iPhone or their iPad or now their Apple Watch to get work done uh, is is a good audience member. Yeah, I think there's a big overlap. Yeah, I actually had lunch with a, a friend of mine. Hi, Sam, if you're listening, um, to, who doesn't use a Mac at all, um, but got an iPhone and an iPad for his law practice and didn't know anything about me or what I do, although I know him personally, and was telling me about this guy, Jeff Richardson, that maybe I should read some of his stuff. And I was like, uh -huh. and then he said, oh, I, I read on his site that you were you were speaking with him. He's kind of a celebrity. And I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Thanks, Sam. No. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we are funny. we are we are so glad to have the world famous uh, Jeff Richardson on the show with us to talk all about the Apple Watch. And you know what? We are we are assured that uh, everything that we talk about will change because of the Mac power users curse. You know, we're recording the show right before WWDC. Um, so if we talk about it, Apple's certainly going to make everything that we say no longer true anymore. Yeah, well, from what I hear, there are so many people that are still waiting to get their first Apple Watch. Hopefully it won't change too much uh, yet. Yeah, well, I mean, we're we're definitely going to hear 
oh, I think it's likely we'll hear about a native app development at WWDC. And one of the big issues now, for instance, Fantastical has a really good watch app. And the problem with it is that it has to go to the phone to get the calendar data when you load it up, which takes longer than the native calendar app, which doesn't look as good or really work as good in a lot of ways, but it has the data stored locally. And um, all the, it looks very likely that Apple's going to announce a way to fix that at WWDC. It's not going to be in effect next week, but they're going to be in process. But already when I use Fantastical on my Apple Watch, it is just a tantalizing uh, you know, indication of what cool things are coming down the future because it's already pretty neat what they've done with that app. And like you said, David, if they speed it up uh, having a native version of the app, I mean, that that's sort of a peek into the future of the Apple Watch, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of really smart developers out there that don't work for Apple and letting them, you know, build interfaces for things that we need on this watch are great. I mean, OmniFocus is a good example. I think that's one of the the third party apps I use every day on the watch. And I think the way they manage that interface is just amazing. But um, so anyway, Jeff, we wanted to talk to you about the Apple Watch because you've been writing about it a lot and you're a very active and enthusiastic user like me. And you had some thoughts that we didn't really cover on our Apple Watch show. And we just kind of wanted to go over a few subjects with you, if you don't mind. So to begin with, which watch did you end up getting? Um, I got the 42 millimeter uh, stainless steel. Um, I have a larger wrist, so 38 wasn't really an option for me. And I got the stainless steel because I knew this was something that I was going to um, wear uh, professionally to work, to court everywhere. And I wanted the flexibility of something that I thought would look a little bit more professional. Um, Having said that, I've seen the aluminum model and it certainly looks nice too, but I just thought that the stainless steel model looked a little bit nicer. I bought the one with the uh, the classic leather band uh, because back when I used to wear a watch, I had a classic leather band with it, and that's just sort of what I was um, what I was used to, and it, it looked like a normal watch band, something that wouldn't you know seem unusual if a judge saw you wearing it in court or a jury member. Uh, but having said that, I also bought one of the fluoroelastomer bands. Um, I, I happen to have the blue one, if color matters, that I use um, for uh, working out, and also um, you know usually when I come home every day, I, I take off the leather band and put on the uh, Sport band so that uh, just, you know, something more casual. I actually think in some ways it's a little bit more comfortable. I have young kids. So when I'm giving the kids a bath, I don't mind if it gets wet or splashes around, stuff like that. And so I like the flexibility of being able to switch between the two different bands, depending upon what I'm doing. The um, Now, with respect to the, the Apple Watch, the um, you had several customizations that you were talking about. We were talking about actually before the show. And I thought, let's go over a couple of those because I thought you had a little different take on it than Katie and I did. And the first one was um, about brightness. Sure. Yeah, there's a brightness control on the Apple Watch, and I liked it all the way up. I just like making it as easy to see as possible. The, the, The number one thing that I love about the Apple Watch is glancing at it. And I don't mean glancing with a capital G because, you know, that means something. You swipe up from the bottom and it's called a glance. I'm just talking about you, you turn your wrist up and you glance at your watch. And um, usually I'm looking at the time, uh, but sometimes I'm looking at some other apps. We could talk about that in a minute. But for me, I just want it to be as bright and obvious as possible. And I was worried that if I turn the brightness all the way up, much like when you turn the brightness all the way up on an iPhone, it turns through the battery more quickly. But I got to tell you, every day, um, I still have like 35, 40% left at the end of the day. And um, and so that hasn't really been a problem for me. So I love having it as bright as possible to be as easy as C. But uh, on the other hand, I don't want to hear it at all. So I have all the sounds turned completely off. Um, I, you know, I, I like my Apple Watch seen, but not heard as it were. I also yeah. have my... T- 
Go ahead. Tina. That's one. That's one thing I've done from day one as well. Is you know almost immediately out of the box, it, it's gone on mute and has never come off. You know, Jeff, it's interesting. Uh, I think Apple definitely overshot with the battery life thing because it, you know I'm ending the days quite often with fifty percent battery life remaining. Um, so I guess turning up brightness makes sense. It's funny cause I've just been wired never to think about turning up brightness on anything because it will kill my battery, but why not? So, so can you tell a, a big difference with having the brightness increased? Yeah, it's easier to see, especially when you're outside. I mean, not that I'm looking at my watch as much outside as I am in an office or inside my house, but it, it makes a difference. And along with, I also have the text size as large as possible, and I've got the bold text turned on, which is something that when you turn on bold text, you actually have to reset your watch, which sounds a little scary, but it just takes you know a minute to do. But with the, the text bold and large and bright, um, I just find that if I you know turn my wrist and glance at it, it's so fast and easy to see everything. I am, you know, I came, I, um, I guessed it on the talk show with John Gruber and he raised the point that he uses the bold text and it required a watch reset. So I did it and I've kept that turned on as well. And what I really find that really nice for is the complications. Yeah. The complications are, are definitely easier to read if you have bold. So to do that, you go into the settings, put on bold text and the watch does have to, to reset itself. Yeah, it definitely makes it easier to, uh, to, to read things. And I like that a lot. So, you know, everything is bright and big as possible. Everything is quiet as possible. And the last customization that I like is there's a setting in sound and haptics on the watch to make the haptic strength all the way up. It's a little dial and you turn and you can turn that up and you can also turn on prominent haptic. And even with all of those things as turned up as possible, I still find that people around me, even someone sitting right next to me in a meeting, doesn't hear uh, when my watch taps on my wrist or anything. It's not like an iPhone. When an iPhone uh, buzzes uh, in your pocket, sometimes the person next to you can notice it. And sometimes that's, you know, a little embarrassing or something. I love that the Apple Watch uh, is, you know, it's sort of like a, you know, a secret, you know, it's tapping on your wrist, uh, but no one else knows that it's trying to get your attention. I, so when you think it's appropriate, you just look down. I had a big shareholder meeting for one of my clients and there was a lot of people there and it was a big deal. And there were some things happening elsewhere in the world that were relevant to what was happening in the meeting. And I felt like such a spy, you know, when during the meeting, my watch tapped me twice and I looked down and I said, okay, that thing happened. Now this other thing can happen. It was, um, it was actually kind of fun. You know, I, I I'm such a, I'm such a weirdo, but what can yeah. I say? <laughs> uh, um, uh, so I want to talk about glances a little bit. Uh, Katie, we've been using the watch for a month now. What glances have made the cut for you? You know, I've, I've actually really limited my glances. I'm, I'm using whatever the basic setting app that you, you can't delete, but I've gotten rid of all the battery notifications. I've gotten rid of the battery glance, the battery complication. I'm just finding it's a non-issue. I, I do see the battery when I plug in my Apple watch at night and it typically is over 50%. So it's just a non-issue. Um, I use the calendar glance. I use the activity glance, the now playing and the overcast and the heartbeat glance. And that's about it for me. Yeah, those are about the same ones that I use too. And um, I love the now playing glance because that one allows you to remotely control your iPhone if you're listening to a podcast or something. I use that one all the time. It's great. Yeah. And really, you, aside from the Apple glances, unfortunately, there's the third party glances I found have, have done not much other than they can display information and they're really just app launchers. And that's why, you know, Marco's done a good job with Overcast redesigning it and putting relevant information on it. But if you actually want to do anything with it, you do have to open up the app and wait for it to refresh. I think the power trick there is to put the now playing glance right next to the Overcast 
glance. Yeah, I do that. Yeah. So, That's how I have my setup too. So yeah. you can see what's playing, then you swipe to the right or the left, and you can actually control the um, the play and the pause. And, and hopefully, once again, that you know this gets a little better. I do keep the OmniFocus glance because oh you know, yes, I have that one too. I'm yes. in there enough, and it works. And I find that glances there's two really two um, categories of apps because where we live right now. The apps aren't native. The third-party apps aren't native. So they, there's some apps that go to the watch to grab data. And then there's some apps that go to the watch that then goes to the internet to grab data. And that second category of apps is the ones that I think are the hardest to make work on the watch because that you add that extra element of going to the internet. So, you know, and it really slows things down. Since OmniFocus has the data on my on my phone and it's always updating anyway because I'm always in there, it it always just seems pretty peppy to me in terms of getting data onto the watch. So you want to look for apps, at least for now that, that don't go too much to the internet. And you even see the same thing with the native Apple watch uh, apps like maps, you know, Apple maps, you get that spinning wheel a lot in there. I find that anything that's a really good uh, glance, I find myself wishing that it could just be a complication so that I could put it right there on my watch and it would always have the latest information without me having to swipe or wait or anything like that. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. In fact, who, who knows? Maybe by the time WWDC is over, this will be old news. Yeah. Well, I, I think they're going to, they're going to announce it, but I don't think we're going to see native apps on our watch this week. I mean, I think it's, it's, yeah. Um, so uh, another thing after a month, what complications have made the cut? How about you, Jeff? Well, one of my favorite complications is the calendar complication. I have the uh, the modular face where you can have all sorts of different information on there. And I've got the time at the top right. But right there, prominent in the middle of the screen, is the calendar that shows me what I have next. And I tell you, I that is just so useful for me as I'm you know in my office or, or going to court or coming back. I just lift up my wrist and I can see what's coming next. Um, that's useful. And in fact, we were talking about the Fantastical um, Apple Watch app. One of the things that I like about Fantastical and I think is better than the built-in calendars app is instead of just telling you what time the next appointment is, which is what the calendars app does, Fantastical tells you how many minutes or hours you have have left until the next appointment. And that, frankly, is more useful to me. I don't want to have to do the mental math of saying this meeting starts when and what time is it now. Just being able to, um, you know, right now I have to swipe up and get the glance for Fantastical. But in this theoretical future where I could just glance at my Apple Watch face and see, okay, I've got 12 minutes until the next meeting. I have time to do one more thing before I have to go to this next spot. That would be fantastic for me. It, would it be Fantastical? <laughs> Sorry. Besides I'm, that, the other one like that I, I have said, on my Apple Watch that I, I like is <laughs> the other complication that I like is the uh, the circles, you know, with the activity monitor, because I realize that this is just a gamification to sort of be encouraging you to be more active. But I like sort of looking at the progress of, you know, have I been standing up enough? Have I been moving enough? And um, it, looking at those circles sort of gives me an incentive to be a little bit more active. Yeah, I find that the the activity monitor is a great. It's up my upper left glance, and I I rely on it now. And I'm looking at, I'm following it through the day. I think when you um when you look at the um the activity monitor, having the data there as immediately glanceable, you know, on your watch face is a great reminder for you. One one of the things I found is my heart rate. You know, I never was good, and I talked about this in the Apple Watch, so I won't go at length. But I've never been very good about keeping my heart rate elevated, and now that's like a thing of focus in my life. And every time I look at my watch, it's reminding me whether I've done that or not. And I'm really making an effort now 
to to do that more often. So having that glance there really helps. Um, I know that you also said you like to use the calendar um, entry as well. Uh, like the next event. Yeah, no, that that's what I find so useful, seeing what's going to be coming next to my calendar. I use that all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so the glances haven't really changed much for me since we did our show. Um, the, uh, like you, I'm using the calendar and the health rate, um, in the upper right, I don't know what I'm going to do lately. I've had it on temperature because we're kind of having some weird weather in Southern California, but when the weather sorts out, you know, during the summer, it's kind of just like the same weather every day. Um, I'm going to be looking at other options and I'm also really looking forward to this, this rumor out there that you're talking about that third party apps will have glances. I mean, what if I had a glance, I'm sorry, a complication, a complication, a complication yeah. that showed just my overdue OmniFocus items or something that, you know, like you said, just showed something from Fantastical. So hopefully that happens. You, you never have overdue OmniFocus items, David. I do sometimes. <laughs> and that's why I want to know when they show up, you know. I want yeah. I should say that, going that, you know, there's actually one uh, watch face called the extra large watch face, which has no complications at all. All it has is just right. the time as big as possible. And, you know, when I first saw that as an option on the watch, I think I laughed at that one even more than laughing at Mickey Mouse. But I will tell you that a few weeks ago, um, I was at a there's a big uh, music festival in New Orleans uh, where I live called Jazz Fest. And it was a bright day and I was walking around and the sun was beating down. And it's hard, even with brightness turned all the way up to see the watch. And there's no way. I was going to be looking at complications, but when I turned on that extra large watch face, um, even in a bright sunlight, um, I could actually see what time it was, which I was surprised with having just the numbers that big. So um, although I do love the complications, it's one of my favorite parts of the Apple Watch. Uh, there are times when it's better to have none at all. Do, do you guys have like custom built watch faces? You know, on the, if you swipe all the way to the right, you can create additional watch faces. Like you could have one with a specific set of complications for when you're working out or something. Do, do you, have either of you done that? I've set up a couple, like, I like this particular comp, you know, set of watch faces, but, you know, so that I can swap back and forth to them, but they're really, I, I don't need them because I only have one of each design. So I guess it doesn't really matter. Yeah, for me too. I've got the modular the way that I like it. And the only other watch faces that I ever switch over to are the extra large if I'm outside, as I just said, and I do that rarely. And sometimes I switch over to Mickey Mouse just because it makes my kids laugh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, my wife is on full-time Mickey Mouse face. Oh, <laughs> she loves that, it. that doesn't surprise me. And I, li- I like it too. Um, when I go to Disneyland, I put it on. It makes me happy. Anyway, um, uh, so troubleshooting issues. Uh, we heard back from some listeners, and um, and Jeff, you've heard some um, issues as well. Um, let's talk about a few things, uh, problems people have been having with this, these new, new devices. First one is Apple Watch disconnecting from the iPhone for no apparent reason. Yeah, that's something that happened to me, I think, in my very first week. And it was frustrating. I was looking down at my watch face, and suddenly I saw the little red icon, which is like a, a rectangle with a, a slash through it, which is indicating that it's not connected to your iPhone. And so, you know, I wasn't getting any of my updates. And after doing a million different things, I eventually found the solution was simply on my iPhone to reset the Bluetooth, you know, turn off the Bluetooth and turn it on again. And once I did that, my Apple Watch and my iPhone found each other, and they have lived happy together ever since then. And although it hasn't happened uh, for me since then, I posted about it on iPhone JD, and uh, I feel like almost every other day somebody is sending me sending me an email or posting a comment saying, "Oh, this happened to me too," and, and I'm so glad I found the solution. So this is this was not isolated. This is something that happens to people. Has it ever happened to the two of you? 
I, I, you know, I, go ahead, Kenny. I haven't had this issue. My because I purposefully disconnect my watch from my phone pretty regularly. I don't take my phone into the gym, so I leave my my phone in my car, and I I just take the watch into the gym and and use it unpaired. And so I see that icon where it's intentionally not paired. But as soon as I get back in range, it it always repairs. Is that what you're talking about? That it doesn't repair after you've gone right. out of connection? Yeah, and for me, I hadn't even gone out of connection. My uh, my iPhone was right there in my pocket, you know, just a, a few feet from my watch. But then all of a sudden, it just disconnected for no apparent reason. And that's what other people have been reporting as well. Yeah, I have not experienced that. My wife did once, though. And uh, she has a 38 millimeter watch. And I read somewhere that that seemed to be a more common problem with 38. I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, right now, a lot mm-hmm. of this is just kind of like people you know, taking shots in the dark because we don't know where or when. Um, another one that you had mentioned, Jeff, was incomplete app icon. Oh, I now that I see, yeah. Yeah, that one's annoying. You look on your Apple Watch at the apps, and uh, uh, as you just said, one of the app icons is incomplete. And, you know, I'm used to seeing that from time to time on my Apple Watch, which simply means that the app on – I'm sorry, on my iPhone, which simply means that the iPhone app is in the process of, of updating. And once it finishes updating, then you have the full app icon and you can use it again. But on my Apple Watch – and this one's happened to me, I guess, twice over the last month that I've had an Apple Watch um, – it just wouldn't change and wouldn't do anything. And so far, the only solution that I have found is to actually delete the partner app on my iPhone and reinstall the app on my iPhone, which of course then reinstalls the companion app on the Apple Watch uh, successfully and correctly. And so far, the apps that this has occurred for, it really hasn't been a problem for me to delete the iPhone app and reinstall it. But I am worried that one day it may happen to some iPhone app that has data built into it and doesn't sync that data to iCloud or, so, or Dropbox or something so that deleting the iPhone app is is not really an option. That hasn't happened to me yet. Hopefully it won't happen mm. in the future. But I, um, I that's may an have an alternate one. solution for you because I have that issue pretty regularly. And, and what I do is I go into the Apple Watch app on the phone under my watch. And let's just say I'll, I'll pick on... Um, I don't know, let's let's say Amazon, for example, the Amazon app, although I typically don't have that on my watch, um, although there's another issue we'll talk about. If I'll just turn it off and tell it not to show on my watch and it will uninstall and then turn it back on. And that, yeah, that was the first thing the I tried, too, and it didn't work, but, but um, I'm glad work. it works sometimes now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other annoyance that I have, though, um, is that the apps just magically install themselves on my watch. And it used to be that there was a setting uh, in the Apple Watch where you could tell it, you know, do not automatically install updates. You could go into general, uh, into um, automatic downloads and turn that off. But my understanding is that whether it's a bug or whether it's a feature, if apps have been updated recently, uh, they're no longer respecting that. Well, that's no fun. Yeah. The, um, the, I, I haven't, I haven't had the partially installed app issue and I'm not sure if apps are installing that I'm not watching. I'll tell you one thing is I, I definitely need to go and, and pull some of the apps off the watch and there's not an, the way you do it, I don't like, I think, I think I'd almost like it better if there was a way to have one tap to remove apps. Cause though, as it is, you have to go into the settings for each app. You know, there's no way looking at your big list, knowing of what's installed and what's not without going into each individual one. 
Yeah, yeah, I need to do that too. Because one thing I found is in in the beginning, and David, you and Katie Yama have done the same thing. My first thought was like, I want all my apps on there. I just want everything mm-hmm. there. And you know, you had all these blog posts. I think David, you did one of all the different shapes you can organize your apps into and stuff. But I found over time that as much as I love my Apple Watch for just glancing down at information and quickly getting stuff, most of the apps that you know anything that requires you to engage for a long period of time, you know, if I'm going to spend a lot of time, it's usually just easier to go on my iPhone. So I need to go through and just take off a whole bunch of stuff. There, there's one or two apps that I love, like the email app. I, it's so useful to me to, you know, I will spend time using that for a while because you can just be sitting somewhere and, you know, in a meeting or something like that, and you can quickly glance through all of your emails. And I find that useful. But most other third-party apps for me, um, unless it's something that I'm going to use for about five seconds, I don't use it that much. You know, that's funny. I don't find email useful at all on the watch. It just, oh, really? Wow. Yeah, I, yeah I, I don't either. It just, you know, you can read it, but you can't respond to it. And I'm not even sure. I don't know. I just, I, I get, I guess I get enough email or for whatever reason, the few times I've gone in there, it just has not really stuck with me. Yeah, I found many times, whether it just be because it's more convenient and I'm sitting there and don't feel like pulling my iPhone out, or, you know, sometimes I work for a large law firm and sometimes I'll be in a big meeting with a hundred different people and I don't have to be perhaps listening, you know, to every single second. And I don't want to take my iPhone or my iPad out because that's more obnoxious, but just sort of glancing through on my watch and turning the little, um, the dial on the side, I can quickly, you know, see what emails have come in. I, I have my watch set up that when emails come in from important people, my VIPs, it taps me on the wrist. So those I know about instantly. But for other emails, I find it very useful just to sort of scroll through and see what's important and and read it. And um, although you're right that you can't yet reply, I'm sure Apple's going to add that feature in the future. You know, there is, there's a third-party app that came out this week called Spark, almost Sparks, um, called Spark that... Um, it does allow you to reply to emails on the Apple Watch. And um, I've looked at it a little bit. I don't like the idea that um, we use Microsoft Exchange email at my office. And I don't like that in order to use the app, I would have to give that company my uh, email password, which they keep on their server. And so I haven't used it full-blown quite yet, just for privacy reasons. I, I don't like giving people my password. But um, but I like the idea that it shows, you know, it's a proof of concept that you can get and reply to emails on the Apple Watch. Yeah, Spark does a couple cool things. Just switching over to the iPhone is one of the things is you can reply with like a smile. You know, you just press like an emoticon essentially and it sends a reply email if you've got a lot of email. But I can't make up my mind whether that's something I'd want to do. I mean, I get a lot of email from ex Sparky people and if I just sent someone a smile, would that be weird? Or would it be better just actually write some words? I don't know. But uh, I'll tell you, though, for text message. Go ahead. I was just going to say for text messaging, though, I reply to texts all the time on my Apple Watch. And I guess sort of by definition, those are, you know, I'm never going to say more than a few words responding to a text. And that works great. I'll be walking down the street and my wife sends me a text and I use Siri to dictate a three or four word reply or tap one of my preset ones. So from that standpoint, you know, replying works great. Yeah, I, I agree. And Siri works great for that as well. All right. Just a couple more things. And we want to get on with it because I'm sure our people who skip forward are 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 pounding their dashboards right now because we're still talking about Apple Watch. Um, the uh, Team 38 versus Team 42 had a lot of uh, emails and messages from users. And a lot of um, a lot of um, women uh, listeners are using the 42 millimeter watch, which, you know, it's cool. They're happy with the bigger one. Uh, I'm still very happy with my 38 and you're still getting plenty of good battery life, right? That's the only downside I could think of to the 38 is the battery life. It's a little, it's not quite as good. 
you know what? It is such a non-issue for me. I have no idea what my battery life is other than I've noticed occasionally when I stick it on the charger at night, it seems to have at least half a circle. Yeah. So. Uh, another thing we totally missed on the show we did on it on the Apple watch is Apple pay. And, um, uh, it's great. I mean, so if you've got Apple pay enabled and if you've got, if you've got the, the iPhone five, this is your chance to use Apple pay, uh, with your Apple watch. And, uh, I've used it several times. The trick there is double tap the button on the side of the watch, not the crown. And that's how you open up Apple pay. You need to set it up on your watch on your phone, not your watch. I went to the Apple store shortly after I got my watch and, and bought a cable with Apple pay and the Apple store employee did like a happy dance. He was so happy. I was the first one to buy something from him with an Apple watch and it really made him happy. There's a Walgreens right between my house and my office. So I literally pass it both ways every day and I go there all the time and it is so fast and easy to pay with your watch. Um, It's great. I love it. Last bit of stuff on Apple watch. So we, Katie and I recorded a show uh, on Apple watch. I think the show published or we just finished the recording. And like the next day they issued 1.0.1 update for Apple watch. And one of the things Katie complained a lot about was the stationary bike performance. It wasn't really recording her calories, right? And then and it's, the update it's notes, better. yeah, the update notes came out and they said, fix stationary bike. So I texted Katie. So yeah, it's a, it's a lot better. You know, before it was giving me like 250 calories for just killing myself in a, in an hour long spin class. And it's, it's about double that. I, I posted a tweet with some information about that. And and so far it's, it's a lot better. I, I don't know how perfect it is. You know, a lot of people are now complaining that the heart rate sensor is off with the 1.0.1. But, you know, we were talking about this before the show. Exercise tracking is never going to be exact on any fitness tracker. And the Apple Watch is still very new. I'm sure it will get better over time. But I think if you are, you know, a serious athlete and you are very, very serious about tracking your exercise and getting this exact, you know, as close as you can to the calorie and to the step, are there other devices that are are more accurate than the Apple Watch? Yeah, there probably are. A, a chest heart rate monitor or things like that. I, I think the Apple Watch is probably good enough for my purposes and for most people's pur- purposes because the bottom line is it's it's making me want to fill that green circle more and more. So I'm the same way, Katie. I tell you, I have a treadmill in my house, and what's the old joke that a treadmill is you know mostly used by folks as a as a clothes hanger? And I'll have to admit, I really wasn't using mine at all. And the day that I first got my uh, floor elastomer uh, sport band for my Apple Watch, I said, "Well, I you know I got to try this on my treadmill." And that was four weeks ago. And so far, I've been using my treadmill every single day uh, to get that green circle. And uh, my wife is a little amazed that I've been exercising so much more. I I, I didn't expect that. Um, and you know, I know it's a little silly for a circle on my watch to be the thing that encourages me to be healthier, but it works. Yeah, whatever works. Uh, And the last topic that I want to cover is I've had a lot of people ask me about the Melanie's Loop. Uh, I received it the day after we recorded the last show. I love it. It's, It's great from a style standpoint. From a from a comfort standpoint, I tell you, I still really like the black sport band. I'm not sure that anything um matches that in in terms of of feel. You know, I, I wear the Melanie's loop anytime that I'm gonna go out. It's not uncomfortable. In fact, it's it's perfectly comfortable. But the back black sport band is just really, really comfortable. I will tell you one little annoyance with the Melanie's loop is I find that throughout the day I have to retighten it. It tends to tends to slip just a little bit. Um, as the day goes on. It hasn't slipped off or anything. It just tends to loosen a little bit as the day goes on. But I like it a lot. I'm glad I got it. 
That's interesting to hear you say that it slips because I was actually thinking of getting the Milanese loop band. And the reason is, although professionally I like the leather band, the classic leather band, um, I find that for me, one of the holes seems like it's a little bit too tight and one hole seems like it's a little bit too loose. And again, I mean, it's fine. It's totally fine. But the idea of an infinitely adjustable band um, seemed attractive to me. And I thought the Milanese loop looked pretty good too. Like you could wear that to court without a problem. Absolutely. And and that's what I like about it. So, well, we've gone longer than we said that we would on the Apple Watch and we, we, we have that bad habit. So we probably better wrap it up here. Jeff, tell people where they can find you and, and a little um, about what you do and, uh, over at iPhone JD. Sure. Um, my law practice in New Orleans is at a firm called Adams & Reese, which is at adamsandreese.com. Uh, but the fun stuff I do is at iphonejd.com, where I post just a few days a week, um, usually app reviews or uh, hints and tricks and different ways that you can use iPhones, iPads, and now the Apple Watch uh, just to make your uh, professional life uh, a little bit better and easier. So any lawyers that are, are listening to the show, I would absolutely love to have you uh, join me on iPhone JD. But but even if you don't practice law, um, if as long as you use your Apple gadgets for things other than games. Uh, I don't talk about games on the website. I'd love to have you uh, come visit. All right. Sounds good. Jeff, thanks for joining us. uh, And we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks. It was good talking to y'all. And hey, a message for all the people that listen to Mac Power users every week. I'm lucky enough to have met uh, David and Katie in person, and they are just as nice and smart in person as they sound on the podcast. It's not just uh, smoke and mirrors and stuff. So uh, great people. Thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks, uh, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. And your, your check is in the mail. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so let's take a minute to talk about our first sponsor today. And it's our friends over at the Omni Group. And I, I got a great email from uh, one of our listeners, Christopher. And he was talking about that the title of the uh, email was Omni Graffle Saves Marriage. I thought it was great. <laughs> so uh, so uh, Christopher explains that he says this may be a bit of a hyperbole, but there's an old saying, the happy wife, happy life. So his wife is in grad school and she was trying to do a diagram and she was trying to do it in, of all places, Microsoft Word. And you can only imagine how that was going for her. I mean, Microsoft Word is a good application for doing word processing, but it is not what you want to use for making a graph and uh, Christopher had been listening to us all these years and he said, Hey, honey, let's try out OmniGraffle." So he goes ahead and downloads OmniGraffle, and he reports within an hour and a half, they had a beautiful diagram that was exactly what she needed. And the thing I liked about it at the end is he says, well, it's funny because he spent 40 minutes just figuring it out and getting through, you know, kind of learning all the ins and outs of the application. If he hadn't done that, he could have had her, her whole thing done much even faster next time he will. So we talk about OmniGraffle often, but I, I like hearing from people who have that first user experience because it truly is an easy to use application to make really beautiful graphs and charts. I use it all the time. Um, I recently had a mediation where the mediator walked in the room and he said, he, tell, he tells my client, he says, just, I want you to know your lawyer wrote the best mediation brief I've ever read. This guy was a federal judge. And, and the thing that was great is I, my words are good. I'm, I'm happy with the way I write. But the fact is what he, what he was really saying was it was full of diagrams and charts and things that looked really beautiful and that made him easy to understand. Well, all that was done with OmniGraffle. So I'm like Christopher, it's saving my bacon as well. 
Um, if you're not a graphics person, you should go check out OmniGraphle because you can find uses for this stuff. I make little graphs and charts all the time when meeting clients. I use it for Max Sparky stuff. Most of the diagrams in the books I write are made in OmniGraphle. It's just really great. You can create anything with OmniGraphle. Um, it's packed with features so you can make a sketch, wireframe, documents, figures, whatever it is that you want. And they have this amazing thing called Stencil Town. And this is the real power tip for OmniGraphle. If you're out there and you, you already own it, you need to check out Stencil Town. There's all these really smart people that have made these graphics images, like kind of like uh, stock images or, you know, starting kits of images. And they could be something like stick figures. They could be boxes. There's just there's hundreds of these these um, groups in Stenciltown, and you can download these templates, and that goes right into OmniGraphle, and you can use that as a starting point for building your your graphs, and it makes you look really good, and it's all free once you you know once you buy the app, you just go into Stenciltown and you, you go nuts and start downloading. So check it out; it's OmniGraphle. You can find it at theomnigroup.com. It's on the Mac. They have a version on the iPad and now they're on the iPhone. So you're going to be in good shape no matter which device you're on. Um, Omni Group, uh, Omni Graffle, excellent application. Saved one marriage for a Mac Power user listener. What can it do for you? Thanks a lot, Omni Group, for sponsoring the show. All right. Well, we've got some belated feedback on our web services show, and we had Tony and a lot of others write in to talk about, while we talked about uh, Amazon growing their web services, we neglected to mention that we missed that Amazon Prime now has unlimited data storage for $59 a year. So I added a link in the show notes to the Amazon Cloud Drive information. We, We talked about it in the context of photos, but not necessarily in the context of unlimited data storage. Yeah, we also heard from Scott, who called in uh, to talk about Boxcryptor. And um, he says, he's not sure if you guys have used it or are familiar with Boxcryptor, but the annual subscription model, uh, the application creates a drive, which is a portal into a folder of your various cloud services. There's a free version, which has some limits. Um, Boxcryptor encrypts files and the file names on the fly. So you can use numerous cloud services at the same time, including a non-supported file transporter. So he says he used it to store sensitive files and he shares it with his wife via Dropbox. When you view the files inside Dropbox, the files are encrypted as well as the file and folder names. So when you view the files from inside your Boxcryptor drive, you can view the data in its unencrypted form. So they also have an iOS app, which lets you view the files unencrypted as well. Um, So looking into encrypting uh, cloud-based files, Boxcryptor is definitely worth checking out. Uh, Bob wrote in with a question about Dropbox and Transporter, and he mentioned that in that Essential Web Services show, David, you mentioned that you use both Dropbox and Transporter. Uh, I do as well. And Bob mentioned that his original plan was to migrate from Dropbox to Transporter exclusively, uh, and then Dropbox expanded to one terabyte. And so his question was, can you talk a little bit about how you use both? Yeah, I mean, do you want to go first or you want me to? Well, go ahead. Well, I, you know, Dropbox is a great service, especially with integration with iOS applications. They were one of the first companies to really get out there and release uh, software development tools. So, in fact, even before Apple, you had links to Dropbox to save data on iOS devices. Um, Transporter, to me, their big um, selling point really is that it's a cloud that you can control. Um, so, you get all this data, you keep it on your local device. And 
you don't have it in Dropbox. And for instance, I'm a lawyer and there's certain things I just won't put in Dropbox. And I know that's a whole nother discussion. I don't really want to get into it, but I don't want to put client data up, up on Dropbox. So I put it on Transporter. The advantage of that is that the, the cloud storage, and I put that in kind of air quotes, is in my house. And if I ever want to take data off the cloud, I can walk downstairs and then plug it, and then the data is off the cloud. So Transporter gives me a little bit um, a more uh, security in terms of where I store the data. Um, the other thing that it does for me that's great is it allows me to store a lot more data because Dropbox is kind of expensive. So um, when you've got, uh, if you've got Transporter, you can put a two terabyte drive in it, and it's just the price of entry. So Heavy data storage stuff like photo storage or photo backup, I usually put in Transporter. And security stuff I put in Transporter. Stuff that I'm going to be syncing to iOS apps, I keep in Dropbox. What about you, Katie? You know, kind of a very similar way. You know, Dropbox obviously came first. You know, we've only had Transporter for a year or two now. And Dropbox is pretty ubiquitous. I mean, it seems like just about everybody has a Dropbox account now. Uh, obviously, you can share documents with anybody using Transporter, which is great. But, you know, I tend to put things in Dropbox that I'm sharing with, um, how would I say, normal people? Uh, <laughs> you know, pe- people who aren't necessarily geeks or, or more so the, the public at large, because I, I tend to find that they are much more comfortable using Dropbox. Just about everybody's heard about Dropbox. Um, but things that I'm using for me or among my sub subset of, of geek friends, I tend to use like, kind of like you said, transporter is for me and transporter is for things that I, I use a lot and things that I want to keep private. So I have actually moved the bulk, you know, I used to keep almost all of my documents in Dropbox. I don't do that anymore. They go in transporter. So Dropbox, I tend to use more for sharing, whereas transporter, I, I tend to use more as my own personal cloud storage. Yeah, so we're about the same on that. We also yeah. heard we also heard from Kurt, who had an audio comment. Hello, David and Katie. I was just listening to your web services. There was one trick of Dropbox that was not mentioned, which I think will be very useful for your audience. Recently, I bought a new Retina iMac with uh, only 500 gigabyte of SSD drive. Just like David, I have pro account on Dropbox with one terabyte capacity. My problem was that I certainly did not want to fill up this SSD in the iMac. I know I can do selective sync, but this trick is even better. I researched and found out to my great surprise that Dropbox offers an external hard drive storage. It is slightly tricky, but once you understand, it is relatively easy to do. All you have to do is to get a fast one terabyte external drive and attach it to the computer formatted for the Mac. You have to make sure it is attached so it never accidentally gets pulled out. Now, on the computer, you uninstall Dropbox completely. Restart the computer, download the latest version of Dropbox application, and start installing it. When you go through the uh, dialogues and installation of Dropbox, at the end, in the last screen, there is an advanced button. By clicking it, you get an 
option where it asks you, where do you want to store the Dropbox folder? You point to the external drive, and that's it. It takes a little time to pull things down from cloud and sync it. Once it's there, it's wonderful. You have a full, fast access to your Dropbox on your computer without filling up any space. And incidentally, you also have a duplicate of Dropbox uh, cloud folder into an external drive. If it accidentally comes out, then uh, the problem is that Dropbox thinks that uh, it's gone, and so it erases everything in cloud. Don't panic. You still have it, so put it back in, and it will sync back again, and so cloud will be fine. On the other computers, obviously, you do selective sync, so you don't fill it. Now you can put everything on your Dropbox without worrying about space. Thank you very much. Keep on making these wonderful podcasts. I'll keep on listening every week. Thanks, Kurt. I, that that part about it deleting everything from the cloud kind of scares me, though. <laughs> I have to admit, um, I don't know. Yeah, but you know, you were you were asking, how do I use this one terabyte I have on Dropbox? And yeah. this is your solution. Yeah, he's right. The um, you could do that. Well, what what I have done with it is. Like, for instance, I've got all my movies. We've, you know, ripped movies over the years. And I I upload them temporarily. I've got them on my Drobo, you know, like my large storage. But when I want to put them into Dropbox, but I don't want to keep them on any device, I upload them temporarily to my iMac. And then I have Dropbox sync it. And once it's done syncing, then I selectively unsync it from the iMac. Does that make sense? Yeah, you went through this in the, in the okay. show. Okay, well, that's, that's how I do it. Um, we also got a lot of feedback on photos, um, and, uh, uh, and we got some news on photos since we did the show, Google introduced the Google photos product and Google's always had like different varieties of photos, but they've, they've got a new solution that is, um, kind of breaking news in, in this field it, with your Google account, you can upload all your photos for free. So long as you agree that they resize them to a pretty large size, but not, you know, full resolution size. And um, so they've got a new service because it's Google. They're going to do the metadata stuff in the cloud. So if you upload your photos to Google, they're going to go through and try and do facial recognition. They even showed in the demonstration like snow, like they said, look for pictures that have snow in them. And it's going to give you all the pictures that have snow. The difference between the Apple and the Google processes on the Apple, you know, all that stuff like face detection is done on the Mac, where with the Google service, it's going to happen in the cloud. And, and frankly, you got to pay if you're going to do the Apple service because if Apple only gives you five gig free, I talked about in the photo show, how I'm paying $4 a month to get 250 gigs of storage. Um, another difference is the Apple service um, uploads full-size pictures, uh, whereas the Google doesn't. Although you can pay Google if you want to upload full-size, they have payment plans where you can do full-size as well. And I guess the last difference is if you're in the Apple ecosystem, I think the Apple solution is more integrated so you can get to your pictures easier. Did I, did I sum it up nicely? Did I miss I think, anything? I think you did. I, I also put um, some links in the show notes with some articles. Macworld did a piece comparing and contrasting the two services. Uh, and then David Pogue did a piece talking about uh, Flickr and the Google service. And we've also got an audio comment from Steven because we did not talk at Flickr at all okay. uh, talking about that. So, um, this is one that we missed, and it's probably, if, if you're looking for some online uh, photo backup and you don't want to use Google, uh, Flickr's an option, too. 
Hi, Mac Power Users team. This is Stephen from East Brunswick, New Jersey. Recently, I was listening to episode 255, where you were talking about the Apple Photos app and to a degree photo management, and I had a, a comment and a question. Uh, my comment was uh, you didn't really mention Flickr Uploader and Flickr in general, and I think that's a really uh, awesome app that you can use to help manage your photos. The Flickr Uploader desktop app is basically enables you to assign folders to the app and it'll then crawl those folders and seamlessly upload the photos in those folders to Flickr up in the cloud. But what's what it, its killer function though is that when you add new photos to those folders, it will just automatically send the the new photos up to Flickr. And of course it'll be those photos will be assigned to private. So no one will see them unless you turn them public. The question I had was regarding Apple Photos. You had mentioned how it was very how Apple has a very confusing method of organizing the raw photo files for photos. And I, like you, have had a digital camera since the early 2000s and have about 15 years worth of digital photos organized in my own method. So my question is: there a way for Apple Photos? Is there a way to use Apple Photos while keeping the integrity of my existing organizational process? I've been using Google's Picasa for a long time, and that is still my go-to photo management app because it is so seamless and enables me to organize the photos the way I want. Thanks for your great podcasts and keep up the good work. Thanks. Thanks, Stephen. The um, uh, I think I guess it depends. I don't really know the details of his organizational method. I mean, there are galleries, and you can have. Well, you know, I can guess what he's talking about. All right, go for it. My, here, here's my guess. My my guess is, and a lot of people have this, is that he has, over the years, folders that he has set up very carefully based on how he's imported his, his photos, you know, folders, a, a folder-based photo organization system. And I think a lot of people have asked, can I keep my folder-based organization system and then just use photos as a browser? I think is what he's asking. Yeah, and I... I it sounds to me like you're going to have two sets of photos. It, it, when you import the photos into the photos app, it's going to bring them into the system and it's not going to duplicate your folders. You're not going to have a 2003 folder if you just drag a 2003 folder in, but you can create a 2003 gallery and drag them into that. Um, but it's not going to have your normal hierarchical folder system. Um, so I don't think he's going to be happy with that. I, I know my, my, um, advice would be do a test, you know, pick one year and put them in and see if you can organize them in a way you want. But if you've got like a third party or just like a folder based structure for your photos, it's not going to automatically rebuild that for you when you pull them in. Um, the, uh, it, it's kind of hard to explain. You actually have to go in and play with photos a little bit. I mean, I, I actually was kind of um, upbeat about the the way they organize these thumbnails where you zoom out and you can see block of years and, and zoom down. In fact, I, I find that I don't need as much organization as I used to because I can get to where I need pretty quickly, but everybody's different. And, you know, I know a lot of people can be really you know particular about the way they want their photos. Um, uh, so my, I guess my advice would be it's a free application and the first five gigabytes are free. Pick a small portion of your existing library and give it a shot. Uh, my, my my guess is no, it's not going to work. Yeah, 
Well, it, it, without if, duplicating. Yeah. If what he's asking is, can I, will it automatically import and rebuild the same structure? The answer is no. And if, if he's asking, can I keep my existing ones and also um, my existing structure and also copy them all into photos and not have two copies, the answer would be no. So I guess the answer really, what I'm saying to him is I would take a look at photos to see if it can replace your existing system. And if it can't, then maybe it's not for you. Uh, David asked, and this is actually a question that I asked because I had to do um, a nuke and pave on my Mac. And uh, behind the scenes, folks, uh, I, I've had some struggles with this show. I, I kernel panicked in the middle of the show here. And um, this this Mac is, is going into Apple for service soon. But uh, I, as part of the troubleshooting process, I had to do a, a nuke and pave on the Mac and um, had to decide what I was going to do with the photos, you know, because that's a big chunk to Redownload. Previously, it was easy. You just copied over from backup your iPhotos library. And David asks, what is the best practice when you're using photos in the cloud and you get a new Mac? Do you just let them all download? Or if you transfer your photos library from your old Mac to the new Mac, what will, will that result in duplicates? Yeah, I think the smartest way to handle that, even though you're not going to like the answer, is you let it download again. Uh, when you, yeah. when you, when you put the photos back in, if it's, going to think that's it that's creating an opportunity to duplicate because the photos is going to know as soon as you turn on a new mac and open photos and put in your icloud id it's going to know what's in your library because that's the whole point of cloud storage if you reload all those photos again uh hopefully it will capture those as duplicates it does a pretty good job of that but if it doesn't it's going to create them as duplicates um so just let it re-download again i wish i had done that you didn't Um, do that i thought that's what you did no, that's not what I did. I, I was doing it for the listeners, David. Okay. So you actually took a copy of your photo library. Did you copy the whole library and just reinstall it? Or how did you do it? I I, I did it just like I would have done with iPhotos. You know how you, you get the iPhoto library package? You have a photos library package? Yeah. I just drug it on over from the backup. Yeah, you shouldn't have done that. Why not? Because it's going to be very confusing for the cloud. Why can't it figure it out? Well. Uh, it should be able I, I to figure. All right, well, let me let me let you're me tell you what to the happened. Wrong person, yeah, so. let me tell you what happened. Um, the the short answer is yes. I should have just let it redownload from the cloud. However, it wasn't as it, nothing totally broke. I mean, it wasn't horrible. Um, I thought it would be seamless and that it would everything would be fine. But yet, when I launched photos, it it took a long time trying to figure out. Whoa! What just happened here? Well, like, let's take it, take Dropbox. When you rebuilt your Mac, did you put a new copy of all your Dropbox data on your Mac? No, but I didn't have 17 gigabytes of Dropbox data. But, well, I, I mean, did. it's really the same concept. I mean, yeah, it is the same concept. And I and I should have, but I just did it the way that I that I always had done. Now, some people are going to have hundreds of gigabytes of photos. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I'm just telling people so they learn from my mistakes. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it, it's um, yeah. but I think many time you you throw multiple pictures at it, then you're, you're likely to have a problem. Now, that being said, we didn't have, you know, I, so I put out a, a whole screencast on photos and I, so I've, I've had tons of email about this application from not only the Mac power users episode, but from the screencast I, I published. And I had one, I, I can honestly say I only had one person write me about duplicate photos, but it was in relation to our show. And it was from Stuart who said, I'm pretty mad at you, David. Yeah, and, he's uh, pretty mad at me. Yeah, but yeah, so he said he loaded up um, um, uh, photos, and his um, his library doubled. 
he went from 50 gigabyte to 100 gigabyte. He says it duplicated every picture. He even sent me a screenshot. I mean, I believed him. I mean, I don't know what the deal is. And I don't know how it happened because I, the way the system is set up, it, sh- it shouldn't be duplicating photos. And like I said, this was the only listener that I have heard from that had a duplicate photos. Uh, I hope he gets it into a, an Apple store and, and figures it out. I mean, we heard from some people who are unhappy with photos, but that's the only duplication I heard about. So yeah, the, um, the only thing I can say is hard links are wacky things. Yeah. And I, and I don't know how else Apple could have handled it, but hard links are wacky things. Well, I mean, the, 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 the thing they wanted, and we talked about in the show was the ability to have people choose between iPhoto and photos. So the way they did the links, you should be able to go back to photos. If you load up, I'm sorry, go back to iPhoto. If you absolutely hate photos. And, um, and that's why they had to use Harley. I understand why every decision was made. And, and frankly, I, I still consider it pretty impressive that it didn't blow up everybody's computer. I mean, by and large, most of the feedback I've had, in fact, the vast majority of the feedback I've had has been people saying, I love this. Now I don't have to worry about it and everything's everywhere. And so, but, but there's definitely some people that face some problems with uh, some of the stuff. Um, Charlie wrote in about raw file support. You want to talk about that? Yeah, I think you had made a mention about raw file support, and we weren't quite sure what would happen. And Charlie says, based on his tested testing, that raw images are not reformatted as JPEGs when they propagate onto other Macs or even to other iPads via iCloud. He said this is true whether it was imported on photos for the Mac uh, or on the iPad. He said he was able to verify this on his iOS devices by using the Seagate wireless app file browser on his iPhone and iPad. Check the file name, check the file extensions, and the sizes of the images imported in the photo apps and verify that they were in fact unchanged from the original raw image. So I guess that's good to know. He said he also further tested the iPad Lightroom module um, that will not display or disport, uh, sorry, that will not uh, display or import raw files and photos, but will import JPEGs. And in his test, the raw files did not appear. Yeah, we actually have more photos feedback and I want to talk about it, but I realize we're an hour and 13 minutes in. We've done one ad spot. So <laughs> maybe we should take a quick break to talk about a sponsor. All right. Uh, well, our next sponsor for this uh, podcast is our good friends over at Fujitsu. Uh, you know, Fujitsu makes the best document scanners that I have ever used. I think they probably make the best document scanners, period. Sitting right here on my desk, I have the IX500. And if you want to sh- go through some paper fast uh, and, and get that paper converted into a digital document, the IX500 is the best way to go. Uh, it is a full duplex scanner, which means it will scan both the front and the the back of a page simultaneously, and it has a 50-sheet feeder, so you can load it up and it will whip through some scans. Uh, it will sync up with your computer via either USB 3.0 or wirelessly, so you don't even have to have it physically connected to your computer, um, and it will scan up to 25 pages per minute. Uh, you can also scan directly to mobile devices, which means you can bypass your computer and you can scan uh, a PDF or a JPEG either directly to an iOS device or an Android mobile device or tablet. I don't know how they do this other than perhaps it's just magic, but they have an advanced paper feeding system. So I I think they use sonar or something like that. But when you paper goes whipping through this scanner, uh, it is very, very difficult to get it to stick or to misfeed or to jam. They've got this special separation roller technology that they use to minimize misfeeds or jams or multi-feeds. Um, and it is just amazing how quickly you can whip through some paper. Uh, and 
as good as the scanner is, the software is very good too. They've got great support for the Mac. I'm assuming their PC support is good too. I, I don't use it. Um, but from the ScanSnap quick menu, either for the Mac or PC, uh, it automatically pops up and it can provide you with a variety of options with what you want to do with your scan. You can automatically configure it to OCR scans. You can scan directly into any number of cloud services. You can scan directly to PDF. Uh, you can save to Dropbox, to Evernote, to Google Docs, uh, you name it, and they provide support for it. So you really should check out the Fujitsu ScanSnap. They've got an entire line of products ranging from desktop to portable scanners. And you can find out more information about them by going to easy.com slash SSMPU. That stands for ScanSnap MPU. Uh, and thanks to our friends at Fujitsu for their continued support of the show. You know, when you were talking earlier about uh, raw support, I th- it occurred to me that's another distinguishing fact between uh, Google and uh, Google Photo and and Apple Photos, and that uh, Google Photo doesn't support raw. Another thing I forgot to mention when I was kind of going through that laundry list is, you know, Google makes their money by selling ads, and I don't think it's happened yet, but a lot of people are assuming or speculating that at some point. You're going to look at pictures of, you know, snow and you're going to get advertisements for skiing or something like that. Um, I mean, that's what they do with email. So I can only imagine that's probably going to happen with photos as well. So to the extent that's a privacy issue for you, that's another distinguishing fact between them. Um, One of the things we talked about on the show about photos was faces. And um, James wrote in to say, you know, faces does kind of sync to iOS and, and he's right. It creates a tag. So like if I have recognize my face it tags the photos with my face name so then i can go on ios and type in my name and it'll search for that tag so it's not actually searching for faces it's searching for a tag but that's kind of a nice way to do it frankly i I kind of hope that apple takes a, a page from google's playbook and starts to do some of this metadata stuff in the cloud that would i think that's that's smart if i control it and i pay for it i don't mind having them do it for me so long as they don't you know use it to sell the data or you know put ads at me. So uh, I hope that happens. Um, Bob also wrote in about um, photos for the pro. I thought that was kind of cool. You want to talk about that one? Yeah. Bob says that he's a professional photographer who mostly shoots in a studio and does a lot of art photography. Um, And he says that for his art photography, as well as his personal photography, that Apple has come really close to solving the issue of having his images wherever he needs them and just encourages people uh, not to uh, discount this as a professional photo tool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's an interesting way to look at you know, like just, just picking the, the key ones. And then Bill wrote in about archiving photos and he took me to task. I talked about, um, you know, making sure that you've got them backed up and you want, you know, everybody to be able to see them forever. And, and Bill wrote in, he says, you know, for archival purposes, probably the better thing to do is to have actual photo prints, you know, on acid free paper uh, and acid free folders or albums or in a dark, cool place. And those will last for a long time, even if all the, you know, compute, you know, when the, when the Planet of the Apes takes over, you know, the pictures will still be there. So mm, I'm not sure I, I mean, I understand Bill's point, but I'm not sure I totally agree with, with all of this because, uh, you know, 
we, we miss something just by having our, our photos on our computer. And I, and I get that. And so I'm a big fan of, of making photo books for special occasions. Um, I think, I think the photo books, for example, are putting photos into albums, uh, or making prints or, you know, fractures, a sponsor of our show, making fractures for special photos. I, I think those are great things to do because otherwise, how are you going to be enjoying those photos of your special moments? I know we've made a lot of Apple photo books recently and people at family events really like sitting down and flipping through those photo books. But if you ever want, I mean, you do lose quality when you create those photo books. And, you know, for, for archival purposes, yes, that photo book is probably going to last 50 years, but I'm not so sure that a, a JPEG won't either. Yeah, I'd agree. Or, or, or at least not convert into something. You know, yeah. the, the, J, the JPEG's been around for a while. The PDF's been around for a while now. I think for something as important as photos that there's going to be a way. I think a format that's as big right now as JPEG, I suspect you're going to be able to read that for a long time. Long after I'm worm food, you know, you're going to be able to read those files. Um, uh, we also heard back on recipe plan. We talked about that in our last episode and we had a comment in from Todd about paprika and any list. Hi, Dave and Katie. I enjoyed the recent show about the uh, paprika and, app and meal planning. I've been using this app uh, since seeing it on the Sweet Setup website, and I've found it really useful. I've also gotten a lot of use out of the Sweet Setup's grocery list app of choice, which is called AnyList. It's kind of funny, as time has passed by, AnyList has added recipe management, and Paprika does grocery list management. However, I find that each app is is best at its original uh, function. Fortunately, I found that AnyList and Paprika can work really well together if you use the uh, the built-in reminders app is kind of an intermediary between the two. The AnyList, uh, I'm sorry, the AnyList app does a good job of managing lists by separating items into categories such as dairy, bakery, meats, which makes things a lot easier when you get to the grocery store. I also like the fact that I can share the list with my wife, so whichever one of us is at the store can pick up the stuff we need. The thing I like best, however, is the fact that I can use Siri to add things on the fly. If I see I'm almost out of toothpaste, I can say, Siri, add toothpaste to my grocery list. I find myself adding things like this probably three or four times a day. Uh, you can do this by going to the AnyList settings and choosing the Reminders Import uh, option. And then you just associate a list from your Reminders app. In my case, it's just a list called Groceries. On the Paprika app, you can move all your recipe ingredients into a grocery list. So when you choose a, a recipe, you just uh, hit a button, uh, you move those ingredients to a grocery list, and then you just unselect the ones you don't need. Paprika has the ability to export its grocery list to a reminders list by going to the app settings and choosing the reminders export options um, setting. And then you just enter your list name from reminders. Again, in my case, it's just simply called grocery. So once I've chosen my recipes and added my ingredients to Paprika's grocery list, I can view the list and choose the export to reminders option. This will send all the items to the grocery list and reminders. And when I open up any list, it will immediately import them there so I can check them off as I walk through the grocery store. To summarize, I like this method because I can add items to my any list uh, list from uh, a lot of sources. I can do it directly from the AnyList app. I can do it in Reminders on my iPhone or my PC. I can do it in Siri, and I can do it directly from the Paprika app. 
The capture is really easy, and for once in my life, I feel like I never forget anything. Well, Todd's ahead of me then, because <laughs> I'm always forgetting things. Um, we also heard from Joshua, uh, who wrote in about collaboration using Paprika, and, and what he said was um, uh, him and his wife have the app, which they get through family sharing, but they share a sync account so they can both use all the features across their devices. And it says it works very well. And one of the tricks he said was he has a recipe called weekly buy. And he adds an exclamation point at the beginning, presumably to put it at the top of the list and all the regular purchases like ingredients and things that, you know, he just wants to get, he puts in there and the directions don't matter for it because it's just the weekly buy of groceries. So he found a way to kind of fold all that into one application. I thought that was kind of clever. Yeah, we got so much feedback on Paprika. I think a lot of our listeners are using it in really creative ways. Yeah, we're we're in at the Sparks house. We've been using it and I like it. I like going searching recipes and um, it's just fun. I mean, cooking is fun anyway. And, and if you can add a geek element to it, um, just like Jeff was saying with the fitness stuff, it's the same thing. If you find a way to make it a little more geeky, uh, I know in my case, I'm more likely to do it and have more fun with it. Uh, so we, go ahead, David. We got a lot of general feedback too. Um, you want to start going through that? Yeah, let's do it. Um, David Allen was on the show and we had some feedback on that. And one of the ones I thought that was really intuitive was from uh, a listener, David, who said um, we were discussing OmniFocus and tracking delegated tasks. And he says, I'm not involved in corporate management as I once was, but for simple task delegation, he creates an OmniFocus context for each person that he wants to delegate a task. And then there, he says, there are some shortcomings, but for simple delegation, it works pretty well. And uh, back when I was working for the man, I had the same thing. I had a context for each person in the office that I had doing things for me. And whenever they came in my office, I would just open up their context and I'd have a running list of, of what I needed. Now, I, I do that at home as well with my kids, which I know sounds kind of weird, but it works. Oh, I can see that. Hey, Dad. Oh, hang on. Let me open my OmniFocus context for you. Yeah, I, I found out that like when you're dealing with your spouse or your kids, you don't do it that way. You just look at it and you think, okay, so at some point today, I'm going to talk to her about the, you know, the summer, the summer job application or whatever it is that I'm helping her with. And the, um, and it works though, but it's, it's nice. I, I think that's a good method. Uh, and David's right. If you've got a, a lot of people direct reporting to you, it's probably not going to work, but if you, you know, if it's a reasonable sum, it, it's a good way to handle that. Uh, Richard also wrote in about the Devon thing, uh, using Devon thing as an email backup. And I know you were talking about this as something that you wanted to do. You wanted to use Devon think as kind of an auto sub sort, uh, email import. And, uh, Richard said that he wanted to do this as well. And he's used it for the last three to four years to set up and running as a sole practitioner insurance broker in the UK and wrestled with this issue. He said he wanted to have a single folder for each client and then have all of their contact history, email documents, spreadsheets, and things like that. But he tried the auto uh, classify feature and found that it didn't work quite a hundred percent and something like this, it really needed to work a hundred percent. He found that it really actually was a non-issue though, because the search capabilities of DevonThink solved his problems. And so he has a client's database folder set up uh, with a folder uh, 
with each client in there. Uh, he puts all of his client documents, policies, and then has a database set up so that the folder names are automatically turned into tags for everything in them. And then he just imports his email there into a separate email archive database. And then it searches across all databases to find what he needs. And he says the secret to making this work is using InDev's mails tags to tag any mail uh, that has a reference to a client uh, so that when that is imported, then DevonThing can see that tag and act accordingly on it. I um when I read this, it was like one of those forehead smacking moments because you know I'm setting up my own business and I do have a lot of email and I've got a, a method right now of saving emails to specific cases and clients and issues. But you know maybe it's time for me to really look seriously at mail tags again. I use I used to use it pretty religiously and I found that um you know the process of tagging wasn't giving me the return on investment that I needed. Um, but uh, for the, the legal practice side of my life, I think it probably would be worth it. So I've installed it and I'm starting to experiment with it. I'm not sure if I'm going to use it with Devon think or just leave it in mail, but this is definitely uh, something I should have mentioned when I was talking about that problem. So thank you, Richard. Uh, Frank wrote in about drafts usage and, and Katie and I talk quite often about this application for iOS called drafts and how much we, you know, we, you know, love this app and we, I don't, I don't think we really talk sometimes to explain how it fits into the system. And he says, I don't really understand where you use drafts. Cause you know, we talk about things like by word and we talk about, you know, other places that we use, you know, write words and text. So, so do you write, you know, do you like, do you write a blog post entirely in drafts? And uh, to answer the question, Frank, uh, I look at drafts as a replacement for like a field notes notebook I used to carry around. And the thing that's really great about drafts is you just open the app and there's a cursor blinking and you can start typing or dictating immediately. Uh, there is zero, like there is zero on ramp. You just open the app and start typing. And that's something that is, is what you need. If somebody's you know standing in front of you and you're trying to capture a note. Um, I don't write long things in drafts. I write little things in drafts and then drafts has a really slick automation system built in so i can write something quickly in drafts and send it out as a text message or i can send it to byword as a new document and then i open a word in a byword document and then that goes into the kind of the system where i work on you know longer things that i write so drafts is really an entry point for me it's not something that i go back and like edit documents in drafts I get them written. In fact, uh, another power tip for drafts is turn on the flag. There's a little flag in there that you can say if I have unprocessed notes and drafts. And, you know, we all hate seeing those little flags uh, or those little badges on the apps. So make sure you don't leave stuff in drafts and you get it out of there. But but the thing that really makes the app magical is that you can open it up quickly and start adding things to it. And then you can have the application go process a lot of that for you. Like if I were to write a text message in ByWord, I'd have to copy it and paste it and do all sorts of things in drafts. I just push one button. And because drafts also works with things like um, Launch Center Pro, you can even automate it further. So um, that's, I guess, I, I hope that explains it for you and anybody out there that's thinking about that. Uh, and then we got a lot of feedback about uh, batteries. And you started this when you were talking about your your new uh, MacBook with the, the single port and how you're charging it using uh, a fancy iPhone battery, uh, battery adapter or battery charger, I should say. Yeah, Michael took me to school. And uh, I. it's funny because I, I was really conscious, if you go back and listen to that show, um, and just to summarize, I, I got a new MacBook and with a new MacBook, you can charge it with like an iPhone charger, which is nuts. And, um, but I didn't talk about science at all 
when I talked about it, because I knew I was way out of my league. Michael, yeah, I kept waiting for Dr. Drang to write, and I was very yeah, disappointed I, he didn't. I, yeah, me too. I don't know. I think he's he's I think he's getting a little slow. Um, well, I think he's just so fed up with you. He just doesn't even listen. Or maybe anymore. he just fast forwards. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just, just listens to Katie. And just every time I talk, he just hits the button. Um, but the, um, either way. Um, so Michael explained it and I thought really nicely. So um, the MacBook charger for that new MacBook I have, the one that came in the box uh, outputs current at 29 Watts. And, and I was talking about the show, how the device basically treads water. If I'm using it and I plug in, this little power brick with a cord to my MacBook, it stops losing battery charge and it'll stop losing battery charge for like five hours. So I'm effectively adding five hours to it. I also explained if the device isn't running or if I've got the lid shut, it'll add charge to it and let quite a bit of charge. But I didn't know exactly why it was doing what it was doing. And he was talking about all well, the amount of current it's drawing versus what it's getting in. And with the basic MacBook charger, I get 29 watts. And he says, the thing I did smart, which was completely um, luck in my behalf, because I didn't even know to look for it, is the charger I bought. It's a anchor charger. It outputs at four amps and you get watts by multiplying volts times amps. So five volts, which is the charger is five volts and four amps gives me 20 watts. Whereas a lot of the chargers for these devices output at two amps. So you're okay. only getting 10 watts out. So the trickle charge into the device at that point, it probably wouldn't be able to even tread water. I would, I would still lose battery with it charged in, but it would just lose battery slower. Um, so I have the right uh, amperage. And, and what he, Michael said, if you're going to get a device to charge a MacBook or something that's going to take more power, make sure you look at the amperage when you buy the device. And, um, and, and I'll put the anchor charger I bought into the um, show notes so you can see, but amperage is important. Is that is that good enough? All right. So I want I want something with how many amps now? Uh, four amps, I think, is is the, the minimum if you're going to mm. charge a new MacBook. Darn! I'm just looking at the one I have, and it's three amps. Well, maybe that would work. So, so you'll get 15 watts out of it. So I don't know. Maybe it won't tread water, but it'll lose a little bit. Are you thinking about buying a new MacBook, Katie Floyd? Well, not like right this minute. I'm just you know yeah. I don't want to go buy one. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to go buy a, I, I don't want to go buy a new charger when I buy a new MacBook. I read the Andy and Notco um, review on this new device. And he, what he said was, you know, it's, it's a great travel Mac. It's probably not a good solo Mac, you know, if it's your, as your only Mac. And it's, you know, a lot of people are still talking about that keyboard. I think that's the big hangup, but boy, I sure like mine. And for, I use it essentially as a travel Mac. And um, I really like the ability that I've got this little, power brick i carry in my bag that can charge my ipad my iphone and my mac it's kind of nuts um we also had on the subject of batteries ironically um martin wrote in and said what about discharging batteries i talk a lot uh, about how i'm obsessive about charging my devices they're always plugged in because i can't help myself and he says isn't that bad for it don't you want to discharge the batteries once in a while and he's right you should you should exercise the batteries one, let them run down once in a while um, what's the name of that app, Katie, for the Mac? There's fruit an app. Juice. Yeah, fruit juice. There's an app that actually coaches you and tells you, hey, take, you know, unplug it from the battery for two hours today. And it gives you a little notification when you can plug it back in. And that's a good idea. Um, with the phones and the iPads, those are always discharging because as much as I'm obsessing about plugging them in, I'm also carrying them around with me all the time and running the batteries down. Um, 
So there we go. Uh, general feedback. Let's talk about another sponsor and then we can get into some more of the great stuff we've got lined up for today's show. And that sponsor would be our friends over at Transporter. And we've even talked about Transporter a little bit already today. Um, Transporter is a storage device that lets you create your own private cloud for syncing, accessing, protecting, and sharing your data. It's better than other cloud solutions because it's 100% under your control. Like I said earlier, you plug it in in your house or your workplace, and you can unplug it. And then it is no longer in the cloud, which gives you a lot of control. Um, uh, all the communications are encrypted. Um, if you like Dropbox, you're going to love Transporter because it's out-of-the-box setup like Dropbox. Drag-and-drop folders to sync or share. You just pull them right in. And you can even share a folder with a single mouse click. Uh, you can also send the email link. So if you've got a big file. I had to send somebody recently a two-gigabyte file off my Transporter, and all I did was send them an email link, and they were able to download it, and everybody was happy. Um, uh, when I use my Transporter, like I was saying earlier, it's really important to me to keep like legal stuff out of a public cloud. And it's also really important for me to back up all my photos. And because with a transporter, you can get, you know, a two terabyte transporter and have two terabytes in the cloud. Uh, you can back up just about any of your big data you want. And there's an iOS app where you can access it from anywhere. It's really great. I ended up getting two of them and I installed one at a relative's house. So I've got them essentially mirroring all the photos. So this handles my offsite backup solution in a way that I, entirely control as well i mean i'm just such a fan of transporter and I, part of me has to think that this private cloud solution is going to become a bigger and bigger deal as we move into the future because i'm not sure everybody's going to want to have everything in the cloud um so anyway um uh, for developers uh, connected data has been busy adding new functionality to transporter so you can get it into your applications uh, now they have versioning they have read-only folders camera uploads thumbnail views for iOS apps and uh, transporter Genesis for business, which is if you're running a larger business, you may want to check in building your own cloud in your workplace, which you can do now with transporter. It's all great. Uh, these people continue to make this excellent application supporting it. The hardware is fantastic. Um, and we have a special offer for MPU listeners, and this is just on our podcast. So this is the place you got to get it. If you were thinking about getting a transporter, go into their store, um, and buy a one or two terabyte transporter. And if you type in the code MPU75, how much money do you think you're going to get off that, Katie? Uh, I don't know, maybe like $7.50? No, you're getting, move that decimal, because you're going to get $75 oh, off. So $75 off one of these if you go and put MPU75 in the store, buy a one or two terabyte transporter, control your own cloud, get that storage in your house where you can control it, 75 bucks off. MPU75. So thanks, Transporter, for all the support, and everybody go check it out. All right. So, you know, I, I love it when we get information from our listeners and they share with us their workflows, because that's really how these uh, MPU live workflow shows started, because we just have some of the most brilliant listeners in the world. Uh, and, and this episode is no exception. So uh, let's kick it off the show with uh, Josh, who's got a tip about uh, iPhone wallpaper. Hi, Katie and David. This is Josh Kincaid from North Carolina. When it comes to our iOS home screens, there might be one great picture, maybe of some family members or an event, that we want as our wallpaper, but we run the risk of it washing out text, distracting us, and otherwise giving us a small panic attack from the anarchy and its disheveled look, leaving us to choose from one of Apple's native wallpapers. 
However, I think I've come up with a solution taking inspiration from both the Apple Watch as well as Notification Center. What you need to do is download a photo app that has in it blur effects and edit the picture to your liking, increasing or decreasing the blur based on your personal preference. Then set the crisp, sharp original image as your lock screen wallpaper and the blurred image as your home screen wallpaper, and voila. You now have a wallpaper that is personal, yet soothingly neat, simple, and something upon which even Sir Johnny Ive would smile. Thanks so much for the show. You guys do great work. Uh, you know, that was such a great tip, and it never would have occurred to me. I know. And because nobody... Have you seen people who... um who have like one row of app icons at the top of a home screen. Yeah. Cause they want to see the picture of their dog. Right. Yeah. Solves that problem. Yeah. Oh, I, I, um, I rearranged my home screen again this morning. Okay. Yeah. Anything uh, you should you, know about? Have you listened to the new, uh, cortex on relay? I, the have, new not. Show? I have not. You have not listened. What? Oh, no. okay. So Mike and CPU gray. Okay. Um, so they were going off about Mike's lack of, of, of his horrible, horrible home screen. And Gray was talking about how his home screen, he only has one screen. And I have that on my iPad, and I really like it. I have gotten my entire home uh, screen on my iPhone. My entire iPhone, one screen. Really? Okay, so how did you do that? All right, at the top, I put four folders. And I'm, I'm, I'm still going back and forth on their names, so these names may change. But in a nutshell, utilities, productivity, personal, and information. Four folders across the top. I'm liking what I'm hearing, Katie. I'm liking yeah. this. Now tell me yeah. more. And then I have my regular home screen, one, two, three, four, which is uh, five apps, five rows plus my home screen at the bottom. So then I have my regular icons down below. Because realistically, anything that's on page two or three or whatever, you're going to search for anyway, right? Yeah, well, that's what I was thinking when you said that, because I've got like, I've got like 20 categories of apps. Right. And so I, tr- I tried to think, what are four categories that fit just about all my apps? And that's it, what I came up with. Utility, I, productivity, personal, and information. I may try that. I, I do occasionally go and drill into them, but I, I, you know, more often I just open up Spotlight and type in a few letters. Right. Um, the, the, the only place I can think where that would be odd is occasionally I get the desire, like once every two or three weeks, to play a game. And I don't even remember what games are installed on my thing. So I have to go look for them. But well, I guess... and the, the personal category was the most difficult. You know, I thought about naming it like lifestyle or, or leisure. Leisure might be a good name for it because that's where I put um, my entertainment apps. That's where the Kindle, the iBooks, uh, that's where Watch ABC is. That's where Amazon Instant Video. That's where Instagram is. But then that's also where things like um, the Starbucks app is. That's where um, RunKeeper, the app is. I didn't know what to call it other than personal, but maybe maybe leisure is a better word for that. Yeah. And then the other one I was thinking about is remotes because I have all these, you know, home connected devices they, and uh, they need their own folder. Well, I still have that, but that's in my regular home screen row because it always was before. Okay. Interesting. Well, you know what? I'm going to think about that. Although just the the thought of dragging all my apps to different folders just makes my head hurt. Is there a faster way to do that? No, it, it took all morning. Oh no. I mean, I, I kid, it took 30 minutes, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, and, and in the, in the chat room, everyone's talking about themed pages. So they have like a page for work and a page for reading a page for games or whatever. 
Um, so I, I, to each his own, but I, I'm actually kind of intrigued by that. Let me know how it goes. I'm going to let you be my canary in a coal mine. So, uh, just let me know in a week or so if you like it before okay. I do all that dragging. <laughs> you know, it's what else you do it while you're sitting on the couch watching TV or whatever. Yeah. Well, that's when I'm fixing my photos library. I'm still working <laughs> on that project. <laughs> uh, Joel wrote in about training snippets and he says he commutes to work by train. I'm sorry, train snippets. I misspoke. And Joel's a friend of mine, actually. So he commutes to work by train, and the trip usually takes about 40 minutes. So he's got a snippet called On Train in Text Expander. And because uh, he always knows his ETA is 40 minutes as soon as he gets on the train, uh, he goes to his wife and the wife and texts her on train. And then it says, uh, Be home around. And then does Text Expander math, you know, to take the current time and add 40 minutes and says, See you soon, Joel. And um, that. And then he then he goes a step further by using Launch Center Pro, and um, uh, with Launch Center Pro, then he can just tap a button and it does the whole thing for him, which I thought was smart. Uh, we talked about a workflow show. Um, with workflow show, we um, you know you can have an automate figure where you're at and how far you are from home, so it could make that even more automated. But in Joel's case, he doesn't need to because he's always making the same trip and he knows how long it is. Um, so I thought that was helpful, um, on the view of text expander, I don't do this too often, but I want to tease a, a post I've got going up on Max Sparky. It'll actually probably be up by the time the show goes live. I have a white whale, Katie in text expander and it, it's Uh-oh. something I've, I've been chasing for literally years. And it's the ability to have text expander automatically address an email when you send it. So like if I'm sending out an email, if you write subject line and tab key, you can have it automatically write the subject line, then tab key, and then write the text of the email. But if you want to address it to a person, I want to say, hi, Katie, I'd have to type in Katie. And uh, for literally years, I've been trying to figure out how to um, get it to Apple script its way into grabbing the name of the addressee. And oh, I have I, a keyboard in my show snippet that'll do that. Yeah, but I want to do it as a text expander snippet. Okay. Okay. And um, so I want it to be all text expander. So I just type one thing and the whole message gets written and it's done. Finally figured it out. It's Apple events that do it. And I've had it working now for two weeks and it's, it's rock solid. Cause the, I had solutions that worked like part of the time, which is maddening, you know, when you're dealing with Apple script and it doesn't work every time. Um, but I finally got it. Like I nailed, it. I'm going to have a post go up on it this week. So if you're, if you're out there and you're interested in a text expander snippet that will automatically insert the name of the address, even email, you're going to be happy with a post I'm putting up in the next couple of days. Okay. Uh, Francine wrote in. Uh, she yeah. actually sent in an audio comment. She did, but let me let me set this up. Actually, I think Francine sets it up. But I, Mac Power users listeners are really good about solving other Mac Power users listeners' problems. And Christy wrote in or emailed in or something last last episode, uh, last MPU live episode, and wanted a solution um, because she had a, a MacBook Air, I think, uh, with a solid state drive that wasn't particularly large, and she wanted to be able to have a solution for her music and her photos where she could keep them with her locally without filling up her hard drive space, um, where she could keep all of her stuff with her all of the time without having to rely on sync, without having to rely on cloud storage. And the best option uh, without having to pay a subscription fee, I think. I think those were her requirements. And the best option that we could come up with at that point, I think, was you know maybe running something like Plex on your own NAS. So at least once you had it, you were done with it. Um, but Francine, actually, a few other people wrote in uh, with a, a better solution, or at least a different solution. Uh, so let's take a listen. 
Hi, David and Katie Floyd. I just listened to your feedback show from May, and I think I might have a solution for Christy, who needs a place to keep her photos and music libraries. I recently bought something called a hyperdrive from Indiegogo, and I know there's a couple of other brands out there. Um, basically, it goes into the SD slot of your MacBook or your MacBook Pro or your MacBook Air, and it holds uh, an SD card, a mini SD card, micro SD card, a little SD card. <laughs> so I've got one with a 64 gig SD card in there, and it's like having another small drive on my laptop. Um, it might not be enough to hold everything if she's got large libraries, but she certainly could keep the entire library on the Drobo and then selectively sync a good portion of the photos and the music to that chip. Um, hope this helps. Enjoy your show. Thanks. There you go. We heard this from a couple people, actually, and I thought it was a really great idea. And and it actually solved a problem for me that I've got. My, my wife's computer, she has a one Mac, and she's dangerously close to me having to push the button to say store it in the cloud only because, you know, she doesn't have enough room, and I know she's not going to keep an external drive attached to her Mac. So I ordered one. Yeah. Now, uh, I'm not familiar with the brand that Francine recommended. The one that I've heard about is the Nifty Drive, which I've put a link to in the show notes. W which one did you order? I ordered the one off Amazon, the same one Francine and a couple of people did. I think Nifty was the first to market. I mean, I think they did like a Kickstarter or something. I remember at okay. one point that was kind of a thing. Okay. Well, if you would put a link to the one that you ordered in the show notes, and that way we'll, our listeners will have a, a couple of alternatives to, to look at. But that's a that's a great solution. Uh, just keep in mind, you'll have to eject that drive if you actually want to put in a, um, if, if you want to put in an SSD or a non-SSD, um, an SD, SD card. card for something. Now let's yeah. talk about speed. Are there different speed SD cards? Yeah, I actually wrote back because we had a couple listeners write in with this idea. And I wrote back to a couple of them. And the Transcend Jet Drive was the one that I ordered. And um, and one of our listeners was really, uh, really a big fan of this device and was using it as well. And I wrote him back and I said, so what's your speed? And he says, I can't tell the difference. He says, it's fine. Um, I, I don't think he ran any you know, benchmarks for it, but. Uh, for my wife's library, I think it's going to be fine too. So um, it, I, I suspect it's not as fast as native memory on board, but it's, it sounds like it's going to be fine. Let me see if I can get some details in the jet drive um, website. Yeah. 95 megabytes per second. Max is max read. Max write is 60 megabytes per second. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll add, we'll add a link to that to the show notes. Uh, we do have a few other things we're going to wrap up with, but before we do, I want to talk about our last sponsor for this episode, uh, and that is our pals over at Squarespace. Uh, and as we've talked about in the past, Squarespace is the easiest and fastest way to build a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you or your business, and, and just to get all of your ideas out there. And we did hear from listener Joe, who created a site using Squarespace. And since this is our listener feedback show, uh, we, we like to... Uh, share some of our listeners' websites. Uh, and you can find listener Joe's site over at topbrew.fn, T-O-P-B-R-E-W dot F-M. And Joe says that Top Brew FM is a site that was inspired by some of his uh, favorite creative people on the web. And he credits the likes of um, uh, Mac Power users. 
uh, as well as the suite setup. And uh, thanks to Squarespace for setting that up. So I uh, appreciate uh, Joe's endorsement of that. Uh, it's a beautiful site. Uh, he's got some nice stuff up there. And Squarespace helps you build these simple, powerful, beautiful sites. Uh, and one of the things that they have is if you run into trouble, Squarespace has great support. They're always there when you need them. They offer 24-7 customer support, uh, either live chat or via email. And best of all, their plans start at just $8 a month. And if you buy Squarespace for a year, they'll even throw in a free domain name. If you want to get into e-commerce and you want to start selling things on your website, they've got you covered with that too. Every single website that Squarespace uh, sells uh, comes with a free online store and you can upgrade from there. Um, so take a look at topbrew.fm. That's Listener Joe's site. Uh, and if you want to get started with Squarespace, uh, you can get a free trial, no credit card required. Just start building your website today. Um, and when you sign up for Squarespace, make sure you enter offer code MPU to save 10% uh, and show your support to Mac Power users. So thank you to Squarespace for their continued support of the show. And don't forget, with Squarespace, you can build it beautiful. I am. Um, we've got a couple things I want to talk about at the end, including some some interesting tech we're playing with. But I also thought it'd be fun to talk a little bit about packing because I'm getting ready. I mean, I'm leaving tomorrow as we record this for WWDC, and I'm obsessive about not bringing a lot of stuff, especially on small trips. I mean, like once I had to go up to San Francisco for a couple of days and I was able to do it with like basically my briefcase, you know, and I thought I was such a rock star for doing that. And I don't think that's even really healthy, but that's my thing. Uh, so I'm going to try and do WWDC this year, just on a backpack. And wow. I, you don't need to hear about my underwear, but I thought I would talk about um, the technology I'm bringing because it's kind of interesting. Um, so, so as I pack, uh, one of the things I'm doing is I'm not bringing like my fancy camera because I don't really see myself taking a lot of shots with the Olympus. If I take need to take any pictures this week, the, the iPhone will be just fine. I mean, isn't it amazing how far the iPhone cameras come just as a complete aside yeah. and, and a lot of, you know, like the geotagging, there's so much about it now that I almost prefer it over my fancy camera, but uh, I'm going to go ahead now that I've got this, um, this, um, you know, super light MacBook that's going to come with me along with the power brick and the iPad. And, and I have the big iPad, but I'm not going to bring an external keyboard. And, um, some people say, well, why are you bringing the iPad and the MacBook? Because there's different things I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be there for five days. Uh, like one of the things I'm going to be doing is I'm giving a presentation at the AltConf and I want to have a backup of my presentation just in case. So that's kind of like my spare tire, um, my phone, my watch, and I'm going to bring the, um, I have two anchor devices that I'm going to bring with me. I've got the anchor uh, wall charger. It's the thing you plug into the wall and it's got five USB female ports on it. And it, it uh, charges out at the four amps, you know, now that we know this stuff, right? It charges out at the high amperage. So it's great to have in a hotel room to easily charge all of my Apple devices because I'm going to have a bunch of them with me. Um, I haven't tried, tried charging my MacBook off of that anchor charger and I think about it, but my guess is it would charge a lot slower than the, than the power brick that comes with it. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, if you're charging it overnight, that may not be an issue. Yeah. Test it. Not. Test it. I will, but I'm still bringing my, oh, um, yeah. my, my power brick that that's, it's very small. I, I can get by with that. Uh, in terms of adapters, I've in the past gone and, and brought a lot of adapters and, you know, everybody's, whenever you're speaking, you're always freaked out. You're going to show up and not have the right adapter, but yeah, I've seen your kit. Yeah. It's, the kits got smaller. Um, I did though, spend $80 on this thing for my new MacBook. So there's another argument against getting one of these things to get the HDMI adapter adapter. You have to basically sell a kidney. Um, but 
I got it. It's it's a nice little device that plugs in. It's it's kind of perfect for what I'm doing because and I looked at third party solutions out there. There are in you know, the USB three. The USB-C format that is in the new MacBook is taking off. If you go on like Amazon or search Kickstarter, there's a, there's a bunch of stuff coming out that supports USB-C because it's, it's kind of universal. But this one that Apple makes is special because it's got, um, not only does it have HDMI, it has an extra USB-A port on it, which is what I need for my uh, remote, you know, my for, remote trigger. For every, everything else, really? But, but I mean, in particular, when I'm presenting my remote, you know, I have a little remote that I used to advance slides and it also has a USB-C pass through so I could put power in and I couldn't find one online. I found some online that were cheaper, but I didn't find one online that had all three of those things in it. So I went ahead and bought the Apple one, but I'm also bringing a set of adapters, both RGB and HDMI for the iPad. Cause if something goes wrong with the Mac, I'll, I'll give the presentation off the iPad. And, well, and how, get, how do you know if you need HDMI or VGA? I, I already talked to the people where I'm presenting. And they okay. said, we only have HDMI. So I'm like, great. And th- it's a kind of a nerdy conference. So I didn't feel compelled to ask them to send me a picture. Quite often when I do for like legal talks, I say, okay, that's great. But send me a picture, please, of whatever it is on the back of the projector. And um, it's kind of nice to have, just know going in what I'm, what I'm going to be dealing with. Um, I'm going to bring my remote to advance slides, but I've been experimenting with the Apple watch as a remote advancer. I'm not going to do it unless I really need to, but, uh, it is possible. I'm, I'm really, I really like the idea of remote when I'm giving presentations because you can just keep it in your hand. You don't have to look down and it stays out of the way. And other than that, I'm bringing the big, the bigger anchor battery that I talked about earlier to charge my, my MacBook, and, you know, not a whole lot more in terms of technology. I'm going to be traveling pretty light in the next week. And, um, it's for business. Like if you're going on a vacation, you might want to bring more adapters because you want to try and figure out how to get your iPad working with the TV in the hotel room or whatever. But I don't need a bunch of that stuff. So it's funny to me how um, my technology kit when I travel has got smaller over the years. Have you found the same thing? Yeah, I have. And I love how you say that this is a business trip, but I have a feeling you're going to be wearing only cool t-shirts. Oh yeah. It's it's funny because, you know, that's the other thing, like business trips, usually I can't get away with just a backpack because shoes, because, you know, when you go to lawyer things, you can have fancy shoes and I don't want to wear them the whole trip, but I can wear tennis shoes the whole trip. So now it's like, it's changed my world. It's great, but it is business. I'm going to be actually, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, I don't know if you want to hear it, but I have a lot of new clients that are from our community and a lot of them are software developers in San Francisco. So I'm going to be doing as much legal stuff next week as I am going to be Max Barkey stuff. It's a, uh, it's really kind of nice. Um, anyway, so, uh, I'm traveling light Katie. Now I get, Oh, you know what else I'm going to, I can't believe you didn't call me on this. I bought a new microphone. Yes. Oh, my mic, the microphone I recommended to you. Yay. I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. And I've been testing it. It's working good. So we'll be able to podcast. Um, I'll be able to podcast from anywhere in the world with Katie Floyd now. And I've, I've got a decent microphone. So um, yeah, because you're going to be traveling a lot this summer. So we, need, we yeah. need to get you a travel mic. Yeah. And it's working great. I've been testing it. I probably should get on you know the phone with you at some point in the next day or two and just see how it works on your side. But I'm really happy with it. And which one did I get? I have to look it up. Hold on one second. This is the problem with shush. You can't hold down the key and do things with your hands at the same time. It's my challenge. I'll, I'll put a link to it in the it's, show notes. It's the cross I bear. It's the Audio Technica. It's one of the Audio Technica mics. 
Anyway, um, yeah, it's so. it's the Audio Technica AT two thousand and five USB dynamic USB XLR microphone. So the thing that's cool about this uh, is you can connect it either via USB or XLR, which is great when you go to a conference like this because you want it for a USB connection, so it's easy to plug into your Mac, so you don't have to take a bunch of cables and adapters. But you never know when a conference like this, when you're going to get asked to join a bunch of professional podcasters who have a real setup, you'd be like, guys, I got my mic, I can come. B Y O M every yeah. time, every yeah. time. All right, um, let's talk about interesting stuff we're using. Um, why don't you go first, since I've been yakking for a while. All right, so the app that I want to talk about today uh, for my cool stuff is an app called Trip Mode. Uh, and this is an app that solves a very specific problem. And that is when you're traveling, you may want to limit your access to certain services because let's say that you're tethered, you don't want to accidentally use all of your tethered bandwidth because let's say you forgot that somebody dropped a big file in your Dropbox and it slurped it down and boom, now all of a sudden two of your five allowed gigabytes is gone or something like that. And so what Trip Mode does is it's an app. It's, I think it's like 10 bucks or less. I bought it when it was on a launch sale. Uh, I put a link in the show notes. It's an app that will sit in your menu bar and you can selectively turn it on and turn on only those services and applications that you want to have access to the internet. So for example, if you're traveling, maybe you want to not allow Backblaze to have access. Maybe you want to not allow Dropbox to have access. Maybe you don't want to allow Photos to have access. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but you know you can turn it on and off depending on if you're tethered or if you're on Wi-Fi so you don't accidentally kill all your bandwidth. So that's trip mode. Yeah, I got that too, and I'm I'm... I'm hundred percent behind this endorsement. I I've already used it next week. I'm going to be using it even more. And, um, uh, it's just really nice. And, and it, it remembers the default. So if you say like, don't use Dropbox next time I turn it on, Dropbox is turned off. At least that's been my experience with it. Um, which is really nice. Um, so I, uh, I changed the lock in my front door. Um, uh, we've talked in the past about some of our home automation stuff. And I was talking to actually a listener of the show who's also kind of a friend and he was switching out to some of these Bluetooth locks. And I, I was saying, well, I think my family would probably go nuts with me if I did that. But then I got thinking, I just really want to do this anyway. <laughs> so I did it. And, uh, we use Quickset locks in our home. So Quickset has a Bluetooth lock called the Kivo and I've been really happy with it. So the way it works is you install, it's just a deadbolt. So you replace your deadbolt with the Kivo and then it has a software key in an app and it has a Bluetooth connection. And it's pretty impressive how this works. It makes the Bluetooth connection if you're in front of the lock, but not behind the lock. And I tested it quite a bit when I first installed it. So if I'm standing behind the door, it will not unlock. But if I'm standing in front of the door, it will. And there's a little like a plastic rim around the edge of the lock and you touch that and it's capacitive. So as soon as you touch it, it reaches out with Bluetooth and unlocks. And when you go to leave the house, it does the same thing. You tap it or you touch it, it reaches out, touches with Bluetooth and locks itself back up. And um, you can share keys like I can email a key to someone and it can be a temporary key. Like if someone was coming to do something in the house and I just want them to get in for an hour or it can be a you know full access key. It also logs um, when people come and go. So you've got a log of, you know, what time you get home or what time you don't or leave. And um, overall, I've been really happy with it. And it's a quick set lock. So if worst comes to worst, you can just take the key out of your pocket and unlock the door. Um, so uh, it's fun to see this stuff developing. Uh, the one of the things I like about it is it's not connected to like if this, then that, or any of those like outside internet services. So as far as I understand, nobody could get on the internet and unlock my front door. <laughs> But um, uh, I've, been good. I've been happy with it. So um, 
uh, I was a little uh, hesitant to get into that. And uh, it's been overall a success, success in the Sparks house. Awesome. All right. Well, that was a, that was a little bit long of a show uh, the, you know, these always go long. Cause we always have great feedback from our listeners, but we've got links in the show notes, to just about everything we talked about today. You can find that at relay.fm slash MPU slash two, six, one for this episode. Uh, you can also follow all of David's travels at WWDC by following him on Twitter. Uh, he is at Max Sparky. I'm at Katie Floyd and the show is at Mac power users. Yeah, and um, we thank you to our sponsors today, Omni Group, Fujitsu, Transporter, and Squarespace, and we will see you all next week. Mm-hmm.